I'm Father Mitch Paquin. Welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. And tonight, we're going to talk about a new plan to foster vocations within the Milkite Catholic Church. First, we want to take just a few minutes to get a quick update from Colm Flynn. He works with the EWTN News in Rome, and he's there for the start of the Synod on Synodality. So let's take a look at this clip. It started with a Mass in St. Peter's Basilica, Pope Francis asking those present to pray that the Holy Spirit would guide the participants in the upcoming Synod on Synodality. This is the primary task of the Synod, to refocus our gaze on God, to be a church that looks mercifully at humanity. This will be a month-long meeting, described as a prayerful discussion on the style, life, and mission of the Church, where cardinals, bishops, priests, nuns, and some lay people will be able to have their say. But before the private gathering kicked off, the Pope created 21 new cardinals from 15 different countries during Saturday morning's consistory. This is keeping in step with the Pope's steady geographic diversification of the College of Cardinals. And in preparation for the Synod, there was a four-day-long retreat. So intense prayer is always necessary for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we bishops and delegates did for, uh, it was only four days, not nine, four blessed days of, of prayer and worship. While the participants were on retreat, five cardinals from five different continents released the questions they had sent Pope Francis, seeking clarifications from the Holy Father on several points of church teaching. The controversial issues included changing church teachings, blessings for same-sex couples, the authority of the synod, women's ordination, and repentance and absolution. In return, the Vatican released Pope Francis's initial response to the cardinals. All of that led up to today, the official first day of the synod. Meeting started right after the conclusion of the papal mass. Cardinal Stephen Brislin is a newly created cardinal from South Africa. Look, I think, I think one of the uh, biggest battles that we will face as, as a church and as, as people who believe in God is the fact that so many people seem to be falling away from the church. So many people are seem to be losing their faith. And to me, one of the biggest struggles, how do we actually reach out to people? Because, I mean, we've got, we're offering life to people. During the synod process over the last two years, different issues that affect the church have been brought up for discussion. And the Synod, this month and the second one in October of next year, will reflect on them and consider possible solutions. Their recommendations will ultimately be put into a final document next year and presented to the Pope for consideration. The next four weeks will be a major part of that process, one that now includes greater participants by lay people. Cardinal Stephen Chow Sayan is the Bishop of Hong Kong. I, I'm hope that voices, different voices can be heard. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy and excited that the lay people, men and women, religious, okay, are represented, the full voting members. So that will make the, the, the synods a lot more richer. And uh, I, I hope that we will really learn to listen, listen deeply. 
This year also sees more women than ever taking part. A total of 54 will be voting. One of them is Sister Anna Mirijam Kashner. In all the countries, the topic of the presence of women in the church is a topic. So if the elephant is in the room, we have to talk about it. But the importance that women are here and that they are vote voting members, I think it's a very, very big sign. Critics of the Synod worry that it might cast doubt on perennial church teachings, whether directly or indirectly, and could lead to ambiguity or confusion around the church's unchanging stance on hot-button issues. During his homily of the opening Mass, Pope Francis asked for unity. A church that has God at the center, in which, therefore, is not divided on the inside and is never bitter on the outside. In Rome, Colum Flynn, EWTN News Nightly. Well, that's our little update. Now we'd like to present our guest. He is the Bishop of the Eparchy of Newton, Massachusetts, an eparchy being the Eastern Church term for diocese, which is a Latin word. But he's the Bishop of the Eparchy of Newton for the Melkite Catholic Church here in the United States. There are 52 parishes, missions, and outreaches, churches, and communities here in the United States serving over 150,000 Melkite faithful. The Melkites are addressing many of the same issues that the other Catholic churches are also facing. And toward the top of that list is the issue of vocations, especially as current clergy members begin to get older and as secular culture continues to lead younger generations away from faith. So please welcome Bishop Francois Beirouti. Excellency, welcome. Thank you so much, Father It Mitch. is so great to have you here. Great to be here with you. Thank you. Now, just to keep with the theme of my opening, uh, we bring guests from around the world. You've been quite a bit around the world. Yes. You were born where? In Lebanon, Beirut, In Lebanon. Beirut, and, and hence your name, Beirut. That's right, one of the suburbs of Beirut. But you grew up in? Vancouver. Vancouver, We, we left uh, Lebanon when I was four and a half, and my family immigrated to Vancouver. You know, the, the uh, social problems and the war began. In seven, uh, the war was getting more serious in 76, so my, my parents decided to, to find refuge, and so we ended up uh, in Vancouver and then uh, spended, spent uh, most of my life in Vancouver and then ended up going to Ottawa, Canada to do my theology. Okay. Well, Vancouver is a very beautiful city to grow up in. Yes. It really is quite stunning and a beautiful part of Canada. The, the second thing is I'd like you just to give us a bit of an introduction to the Melkite Church. Who are the Melkites? Why are you called Melkite? Sure, sounds good. Yeah. Uh, if you think of early Christianity, especially Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus says, go out into the whole world and make disciples of all nations. The disciples actually did that, and they started going beyond the city of Jerusalem. So the earliest Melkite churches trace 
their roots to the early community, the first community that received the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, but did not stay in Jerusalem because they followed the commands of our Lord to go into the whole world and proclaim the good news. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what they did. So we find in the Acts of the Apostles communities that were established not only in Jerusalem, but in southern Lebanon, in, 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 in Egypt, in, in, um, in today what is known as Turkey. And so we have Melkites today um, from Syria, from Lebanon, from Palestine, from Egypt, and spread across that entire region. So the apostles went and they established churches throughout that, throughout that region. And that the, the origins of the Melkite church are those early Christian communities that were established there. Okay. In fact, the Acts of the Apostles, as you know, in Acts chapter 11, it was in Antioch that the followers of, of, of Jesus were first called Christians. Mm -hmm. So the Melkite Catholic Church traces its root, its patriarchate, to the Sea of Antioch. And uh, the reason Antioch became popular is also because Jerusalem wa was sacked. And so the communities were spread and the, the patriarchal sea became Antioch. Now the word itself, Melkite, actually comes from a Syriac root, uh, meaning emperor or, or king. Mm -hmm. And as we know, the ecumenical council starting in the year 325 were called, convened, and protected by the emperor. So 325, the council of Nicaea was Constantine, who after moving the em em capital of the empire from Rome to Byzantium and renaming it Constantinople, you know, he was a very humble guy, so he decided <laughs> to uh, name the city, the city of Constantine. Um, and then he convened uh, the first ecumenical council and brought together, the word ecumenical refers to the household that was brought together in Nicaea to discuss matters of the household. So the emperors became the de facto protectors of the, of the church and, and the conveners of, of the ecumenical council. So in 451, the Council of Chalcedon, which, dis which discussed the humanity and the divinity of Christ, those who rejected the Council of Chalcedon, we used to call them Monophysites, and now you know, we, we try to use other terms so that to bring the churches together, but those who rejected the Council of Chalcedon called those who accepted the Council of Chalcedon the king's men, the emperor's men. It was originally a derogatory term that was used for everyone, Roman Catholics, Eastern Catholics, all the jurisdictions, every community that followed the Council of Chalcedon, in a sense saying, you are followers of the emperor or the king. And so those who accepted the Council of Chalcedon took it as a title of pride and honor that yes, we are men and women who, who acknowledge the ecumenical councils of the church and therefore, we are followers of the ecumenical council, so we are very happy to be called the emperor's men or the, or the men and women of the council that is protected by the, by the emperor. So that goes, to, that goes back to the term, the early church history up until the fifth century. Yep. But the church history doesn't stop there, so the communities continue to grow. As you know from, from church history, there were times of great persecution, but those early Christian communities stayed faithful. So sometimes people ask me, when did you become Catholic? Well, uh, at the time of Jerusalem, at the time of Pentecost in Jerusalem, these communities <laughs> did not convert to Christianity. These communities did not become Catholic at a certain period of time. They are the native Catholic churches uh, of that region and the native Catholic churches of Christianity. So today- th I would add that you know, I've gone to villages in the Palestinian territories that have been Christian, That's right. who they were evangelized by the apostles. Right. They've never stopped being Christian. The 2,000-year-old right. 
Christian community. So exactly. this is very important. My ancestors were worshiping the <laughs> thunder god uh, in the plains of Poland, and right. who knows where they came from. And but your ancestors were already Catholic. They were already e Christian. Exactly. And that's sometimes we that, that's sometimes sometimes something we overlook in our Catholic faith. That the word Catholic means universal. Yes. The Greek root, of course, means belonging to the whole, emphasizing the concept of that these communities belong to a larger community that is beyond themselves, that they see themselves as being connected mm -hmm. with each other. And so we've had 2,000 years of proclaiming the, the, the true doctrines of Christianity as found in the early ecumenical councils, but also witnessing in the faith through the martyrs and also witnessing through um, great, uh, great movements uh, in the church, specifically monasticism, and also contributing to iconography and the great traditions that all Catholics recognize as their own, but the roots of that um, was in, in that region of the Middle East that, uh, that Christianity grew and is still alive and bears witness to the faith. Um, related to that is that in addition to, the, to Christ telling his disciples to go into the whole world, well, the Melchite Catholic Church and all the other Eastern Catholic churches now are no longer just in their, their traditional territory. And so, in, in fact, the the commission of Christ to go and to, to preach the good news to all nations has happened by way of immigration and a variety of other things. So today we have Melkites spread out throughout the whole world and dioceses, also called eparchies, that are also spread out throughout the United throughout the world, specifically here in the United States. That, you know, I say by the by the grace of God, I, I was ordained 25 years ago. I was ordained a priest 25 years ago today, so it's coincidental that we're here talking about vocations. Or providential. Providential, yeah. so providential. And not only that, but it's also your feast day. Exactly, Your, your Francis. name, Francois, is yes, Francis. That's right. In French, and today's yeah. the feast of Saint exactly. Francis. Exactly. So I say by, when I was ordained a priest, it was by the grace of God, and when I was ordained a bishop, it was by the sense of humor of God. <laughs> so I've been a bishop now almost a year, October 12th of, uh, of last year. And God, God has, and the church has entrusted me with this task of leading the Melkite Catholic faithful that has its roots uh, in, those, in those areas where the churches were first established, but today are very vibrant and active and consist of people from all sorts of backgrounds, not mm -hmm. just from people of Middle Eastern background. And that's a very important point. Sometimes people hear a name, they go, oh, that doesn't sound very Middle Eastern because the church by its very nature is open to all, na to all nations. And nobody can ask people's background. It's by its very nature um, uh, accommodating. And, and when somebody walks into a church, that becomes their church regardless of their background. So that's kind of a, a very brief overview of 2,000, 2000 years and, of, of uh, our Melkite and, communities. And I appreciate that very much. One other thing, too, I know about the Melkite church is that it's not limited to any one particular ethnic group. Correct. It's we are the only Eastern Catholic Church that is not connected to one particular ethnicity. So today you have Melkites of origin that are going, you know, geographically, Syrian, Lebanese, Palestinians, Jordanians, Egyptians, and also Sudanese. We have mm -hmm. community members who went to that area. That, in a sense, is the, is the, the these are the native churches. However, today, in addition to that variety in the Middle East, today we also have um, clergy and lay people who love, the, who love the divine liturgy, who love the spirituality, who love the prayer life, love the iconography, and have also found their home in the Melkite church. And nobody 
regardless of their background, has any superiority in the Melkite church. So in other words, the fact that I have a Lebanese-sounding name does not make me more Melkite than somebody who has uh, a name that doesn't sound very Melkite. And that's something we emphasize, especially here in the United States, that our, that our church has a historical root, the Sea of Antioch and that region, and we need to understand that that's actually not just a nationalistic identity, it's actually a connection to early Christianity, and now that, that message and that faith and that church is open to the whole world. And it's, it's also rooted in fidelity to the Council of Chalcedon Correct. Uh, and the other ecumenical councils, Correct. which is a, a key element of the Maronite community as well. Correct. This was the, the same issue, but for Syriac-speaking Christians. Right. Well, you bring up a, a, a very important point that um, within the Catholic Church, there are a variety of liturgical traditions and liturg uh, a family of liturgical families. And I like to summarize it in, in the number five. There's the Latin or Roman rite. In the East, we have the Byzantine family, the Armenian family, the Syriac family, and the Coptic family. Mm -hmm. So all those churches form the beauty of the one holy Catholic and apostolic mm -hmm. church. And as Pope John Paul II reminded us in his encyclical Ut Unum Sint, that they may all be one, that the Catholic Church needs to learn and appreciate that we need to breathe with our two lungs east and west. So that refers not only to the Roman Catholic Church, but also it refers to the Eastern Catholic Churches that can learn a lot from the other um, Roman Catholic Churches, both in the Mid in Middle East or anywhere else in the world. Here we are in America, and the Eastern Catholic Bishops are part of the United States Conference of Bishops, and so we gather, we meet, we share with each other, and we discuss whatever, whatever document that is going to be presented on behalf of the entire bishops. So we gather as a true Catholic community here, and we learn from each other and grow in our journey of faith with each other. And even though in the United States the Roman Rite is the dominant community uh, and throughout the Western Europe and much of the world, it's always good to, to remember, even in a large pot of stew, one small piece of garlic makes a difference. Very good. Well, that's a good analogy to use garlic because, of course, we love that in our food. Um, and it's also that analogy, I think, is very, is, is very important because at the Second Vatican Council, the document on the Eastern Catholic Churches specifically said that although these churches are smaller in number, they still bear witness to the apostolic faith of the yes. Catholic Church. Exactly. And so the number, you know, for a variety of reasons, the numbers are smaller, but yet the faith is still there and it bears witness to, to that apostolic faith that goes back to the first days of Christianity. Exactly, exactly. Now, with, you know, being here in the United States, uh, you're dealing with a, a different kind of culture. This, in the Middle East, the dominant culture is Muslim, and they're the largest number of people, and they have a tremendous impact. Again, the Christians have a very important role, even in countries that are majority Muslim. Correct. But here, you it's not a majority Muslim, it's a majority of Protestant Correct. people in the United States whereas if you were in Italy, it would be a majority of Catholics mm -hmm. or Spain, same. So this, but Latin Catholics. And you are dealing with some of the same concerns in what is uh, a majority Protestant culture, but even to say it's majority Protestant culture, 
in the United States. That has 55,000 expressions. Correct. You know, it's a, there are tens of thousands of different denominations and churches. And uh, we come as Catholics to this situation with our own insights and preservation of our own identities. And we have to deal not only with that, but a decline in Christianity in this country. Mm. And how do we continue to grow as a church? And again, tonight's topic, I think, is an important one. How do we continue to grow in vocations to the priesthood, the diaconate, subdiaconate, which is still in right. existence in the Readers Eastern and churches, and, uh, and also the religious life yeah. for men and for women. So what do you see as the challenge in this situation for specifically Melkite Church seeking to grow in the number of people uh, called to very vocation good. in the church? Thanks for that question, and also the introduction to that question is very important because the Catholic Church, you know, we focus a lot on, on tradition. And that just doesn't mean customs and practices. Right. It means the, the mindset of our fathers in not only theological, spirituality, but, but how they dealt with issues. And, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. So everything that we are dealing with today, the church has dealt with it in one way or another over history. So if you think the, the first 300 years... Well, Christians were being thrown to the lions, they were being burnt, they were being persecuted, they had their properties being confiscated. So what was their response? We have to ask that question first. In that first period, what was their response? Their response was to be intensely engaged in the gospel, to be intensely uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, to be intensely knowledgeable of their faith, and from that, regardless of their numbers, to bear witness in the truth, even the small numbers, to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of the good news. Fast forward many years, many periods in church history where you see the church being persecuted, you see the church being a minority, and even times being a majority still having to deal with that role of truth and presenting the gospel. So here we find ourselves in North America, we find ourselves in the United States where very often, especially at the level, uh, say this often, at the level, at the university level, where universities are supposed to be institutions of education, Unfortunately, what we see today, they, be, they become and are institutions of propaganda and institutions of attacking traditional values and traditional faith. So what is our answer? Same answer that the early church had. First of all, be immersed in the love, mercy, and our relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the foundation of the early church. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they went out, 12 men, and then they became 11. So it, was, it started off very badly, <laughs> and then they were all hiding behind closed doors. It was even worse. And the eight yeah, percent of the <laughs> bishops had abandoned Jesus and the church. They disappeared, and then the women came, told them Christ had risen, and they went and they proved that for themselves, and they 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 believed it, and their entire life was transformed, and they transformed the entire Roman Empire and the entire world. So I take that as an important starting point. First, let's look at the situation of the Christians in the Middle East who have great challenges continuing to live their, their faith. However, they have persevered for the last 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. And in that perseverance, it wasn't, it wasn't a battle of who's tougher than who. That's not what made Christianity 
uh, flourished and strong in the Middle East. Up until today, Catholic churches are, have the most hospitals, have the most schools, have the most social institutions, and have a sense of that they are the yeast in, and the leaven in, in this society. I think we need to take that same mindset, that regardless of who, who is a majority or a minority, what the statistics say, if there is even one community that is vibrant, even if there is one community that is intensely engaged in the gospel, the church is a living body. And when the body is healthy, it grows, it flourishes, and the tree bears fruit. So we have to be firmly convinced that the message of Jesus Christ is still alive today, not in an abstract way, but in our lives. And when it is alive in our life, it converts the world. It converts our society. It converts our family and friends because they see a light that is in us that is more rooted, more sustainable, and brings us great joy and will bring them great joy. And that is something that I think we, we overlook. We sometimes try to modify the gospel, um, you know, a, a, present it perhaps in a, in a way that we think is more appealing. It doesn't need to be more appealing. There's nothing more appealing than the death and resurrection of Christ. There is nothing more appealing than the forgiveness of our sins. There is nothing more appealing than Christ turning to somebody who is abandoned and, ha and him having mercy and showing compassion to that person. That message is eternal. It never goes out of style. And in fact, it perhaps has never been in style for it to go out of style. So that's what I think is the foundation of our parish communities here. And that's where we tie into vocations. Very often, we think of vocations as a call of somebody else. So somebody may ask you, oh, Father Mitch, when did you get the call? And then, of course, you, you, you'd be more than happy to explain your, your vocation story. Or they might say, you know, Father Mitch, I never got the call. You're the one who got the call. I never got the call. That's bad theology. Yeah. We all got the call at baptism. In fact, if we want to be wider, we all got the call at creation, that God created us for a purpose and a reason. So first of all, we need to understand what, it, what, voc what vocations are. They are not the call of somebody else. You have got the call. Every, some, every single person, whether they are old or whether they are young, they have received the call of Jesus Christ to do something in their life. Now, if they have not thought of that before, this is the time to stop, to pause, and to go back and think, how has God blessed my life? What has God done in my life that is a big blessing? So for me, it was escaping a situation of, of, of war, of, of, of chaos, and to come to, come to a country of, of shelter. And then 10 years ago, I was appointed to be a pastor at Holy Cross in California to feel that God is journeying. The first step is to realize that God is working and is already working in our life. Now from that, this is where we Christianity switches narcissism and places it on its head. Narcissism is when we think we are the center of the world and the world can't go on without us. Christianity is acknowledging those as gifts from God. And this is why it's also very important to see 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 13 together. Everybody loves to read 1 Corinthians 13. Love is kind, love is patient, it's so beautiful. But they don't realize that St. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 12 for first, which focuses on the gifts that God has given you in order to help you express God's love. So in our Malchite Catholic churches, our vocation plan 
is to first focus on that everybody has received the call and to create opportunities for young people, for older people, for those who have been there all their life, for those who have just walked through the door, an opportunity not just to say, oh, did I hear the voice of God or not, but to, uh, an opportunity to realize that God has already called them and has called them for something special today, and in particular, to express that in active ministry in the church. So that is the, the focus of our vocations plan, is that vocations are nourished and that vocations grow, and that somebody doesn't just say, oh, I feel like um, leaving everything and following Christ because um, I just got fired or I failed uh, my college course. They were said, let me go try the priesthood. Maybe that's, that's a little more appealing. They won't get very far, as you no. know, no. right? So it's not just a call. It's a response to a life of service that we want to foster in our church. And from that, we'll have men and women who are active in an engaged parish, and we'll also have men and women who respond to the call to the priesthood, to, to monastic life. Hopefully we'll have um, a community of monks and nuns in, in, in the United States very soon. When, if, we, if we engage people with the truth of the gospel, uh, vocations will be abundant. Yeah. We've been blessed in the Maronite Church to have uh, two monasteries now. Uh, and one has hermit uh, right. with them. And people sometimes don't see, well, what, what good is that? Right. I always compare it. Uh, my dad had no company. Why would you bother to be a, <laughs> a monk, you know, and just pray all day? I said, right. Dad, it's like the battery in the car. The battery is not a moving part, but it gets everything else started. Right. And, you know, we need those who just pray and worship God through the day to be that spiritual battery that gets the rest of the church moving. So yeah. it's a very important vocation. That's a beautiful analogy and also something that has been um, underappreciated in the life of all the church, whether East and West, as if somebody with a talent is wasting their life by praying. But then if we think that way, then we're thinking outside the biblical narrative. We're thinking outside the biblical framework mm -hmm. of our life. St. Paul says, pray without ceasing. <laughs> Therefore, yes. the biblical, the, the monastic tradition focuses on the fact that there are men and women who have dedicated their entire life to pray without <laughs> ceasing. We also see many examples. Uh, the, the heart of our faith is for us to pray for each other. And how can we focus on that as an important biblical and, and Christian principle when we don't have a community that prays for each other and offers hospitality and offers a place of rest and offers a place of nourishment like, uh, like uh, the inn in the, in, the, in the parable of the Samaritan woman, in the, the parable of the, the Good Samaritan, where there is, there is a location where people can go and pray and get nourished before they go on to the rest of their, their other activities. So there's a twofold. First are the monks, male, female, who have dedicated their entire life to prayer, and second are the people who, are, who go there and enter into the life of the monastery and then leave the world, leave the monastery refreshed and ready to engage the world in the spirit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Exactly. We have to take a little break. Okay. We'll be back in a couple minutes. So please stay with us. We look forward to your questions and comments about uh, the Melkite Church or about the uh, issue of vocation, so please stay with us.
All right, welcome back. First, before we get to your questions and comments, just want to invite you to mark your calendars for the National Eucharistic Congress that is coming up next year, July 17th to the 21st in Indianapolis, Indiana, right in the center of the country. And you can find out more about it and receive a code for discounted registration worth almost $80 by going to EWTN.com slash Eucharist. And while you are there, you can sign up for a free, to, a free ebook from EWTN called The Twelve Stations of the Most Holy Eucharist. And this is meant to help us understand the Eucharistic story of God's love for us from the Old Testament to the institution of the Eucharist by Jesus Christ. So you can get almost $80 off your registration for the National Eucharistic Congress, plus a free ebook from EWTN. All you have to do is go to EWTN.com slash Eucharist. And just to let you know, a recent study was done uh, and it's showing that there already is positive effect from this Eucharistic training and teaching that a few years ago, the Pew Research showed that one third of Catholics held Catholic doctrine about the Eucharist. They just did another one this year and it's now two-thirds. So we want to get three-thirds coming up, get all of us in that, but also to share this good news with other Christians as well. Also, if you want to learn more about the Melkite Catholic Church in the United States and learn more about Bishop Francois Beiruti, you can go to Melkite, <coughs> excuse me, Melkite.com. Org, and you can also go to youtube.com slash Melkite TV. So there'll be all kinds of information about that. You ready for some questions? Sure. We'll start off with our studio audience. Sir, where are you from? Originally from Kraków, Poland, but I live in Charlotte, North Carolina now. You're welcome. And I have a question. Can Western Rite Roman Catholic attend the Sunday Mass on Eastern Rite churches? And is there any situation when Western Catholic can become member of the Eastern Rite church? Well, thank you for that question, those two questions. Uh, first, we are one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Mm -hmm. And therefore, anybody who is Catholic anywhere around the world can attend any Roman Catholic Church, can attend any Eastern Catholic Church. So, and also receive Holy Communion. Correct, receive communion as well. Yep. So, and you can also go, any Catholic, Roman Rite or uh, Eastern Church can go to confession to a priest from any of the rites. Correct. It's all fully in communion. Yeah. So one thing I always tell people when they first walk into a church, I was, I've been a pastor for very long, is that this is your home. And I don't just mean that um, at a, as a physical home. This is your spiritual home. In other words, mm -hmm. when somebody walks into a Catholic church, they should feel, even though what they see around them looks a little different, it's an opportunity for them also to understand their own 
whether it be a Roman Rite background, because the liturgy is common. We believe the exact same thing when it comes to the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. We believe that the, that the divine liturgy is a celebration of all of salvation history. So it's also an opportunity for Western Catholics, Roman Catholics, to see this Catholic faith, this universal faith, this faith that belongs to each other, belonging to the whole, expressed in a slightly different way. So it enriches their Catholic faith, because if there's only one part of the Catholic Church, then it can't be Catholic. So at that level, everybody should feel that, and they don't need to go, they don't need to go to a Roman Catholic Mass in the morning and then attend an Eastern Catholic Divine Liturgy, no. just, be, just, just so they get, they should re realize that this is um, a Catholic Divine Liturgy, a Catholic prayer in the fullness of what it means to be Catholic. So everybody is welcome to attend. Everybody is welcome to pray. They don't need to be registered. They don't need to ask permission. They don't need to show any ID papers or baptismal certificates. Walk into a church and worship Christ as the early Christians worshiped, worshiped him. And, and I want to show a little clip oh, of, sure. of some music from your church, some of the yep. scenes. Let's take a look at that. up one other point too with this music we obviously heard singing in English and then in Arabic Correct. in the Melkite church the default language would be it, Greek and also Aramaic in the early church both both languages were used yeah, technically we can say that the official language is Greek but there's a combination of of Greek and Aramaic in the early liturgical tradition. Actually, we have many texts of our divine liturgy in Aramaic as well. Mm -hmm. And it's been a characteristic of the Eastern Catholic churches to worship in the vernacular. So whatever language the people used, that is the language that the church adopted. And in fact, that was one of the contributions that the Melkite Catholic bishops made at the Second Vatican Council, the importance of, of using a language in addition to maintaining a liturgical language and not, and not uh, losing a connection with the past, but also uh, having uh, using a language that represents the local culture wherever we are. So we have parishes in the United States that um, are partially in Arabic, some a little more in Arabic, especially where there are, where there are newer immigrants in order to mm -hmm. to to uh, uh, assist them in the transition. But we also have parishes in the United States that have absolutely no Arabic, or or just use a verse or two because the vast majority of the community is second or third generation, or in some cases the vast majority of the community is not of any Middle Eastern background at all. 
So because of our focus on that the Melkite Church is open to everybody, we also want to communicate and also keep the young actively engaged by using English, having a little bit of Arabic and Greek at, at times, but uh, focusing on, on, on English as a language that we predominantly use in our worship and in our communication with, with in, others. In the, similar in the uh, Maronite community, we, our default language in that community is Syriac dialect of Aramaic, mm -hmm. but, uh, and we use that for a number of parts of the Mass, the commons, but we also include Arabic hymns. Correct. And usually mix part English, part Arabic, because our particular parish is 110 years plus. <laughs> yes. So a lot of people don't know Arabic, but we have a lot of immigrants. Correct. So we, we keep that combination, yeah. and this is, uh, again, it's that piece of garlic. Yeah, so, so that parish that, that we, we heard is uh, St. Joseph's in Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is over 125 years old, and that has a combination of both English, Greek, and, and Arabic as well. Yeah. And that also, in a beautiful way, represents the universal church, the whole church, where, and the time, the time, the day of Pentecost, where they, they, they heard people in a variety of languages, but mm -hmm. also bringing those variety of languages into one community and, and to be engaged in that community. Okay. We have another question from our studio audience. Father, where are you from? Thank you, uh, Father. I'm from Australia, from uh, the Diocese of Wagga Wagga. <laughs> and you win the long distance award today. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Welcome, Father. Good Thank to you have for you here. I've, as I've mentioned to you before the show, I've been to Wagga Wagga. It's a very vibrant Catholic community in Wagga Wagga. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Your Grace, if I might ask, in, in a world that's becoming increasingly influenced by the secular, but yet still there is a thirst for spirituality, what might you say? would be a good means to part, keep passing on the faith and also to, for the youth particularly to retain the faith? Thank you very much for that question. So all the Eastern Catholic bishops of the United States have put together a group called God With Us, mm -hmm. God With Us Online, God With Us Radio, God With Us Publications, that represents all the Eastern Catholic bishops and presents... Um, the faith in, in, the, in the variety of means that is needed to be that needs to be presented today. So we have within, within that God with us online program, we have programs for children, we have programs for youth, young adults and adults. And I think um, the focus of you know my episcopate and also the focus of, of my time as a parish priest was becoming disciples, making disciples, that a healthy parish needs to have those two elements. We become disciples through prayer and study. And then we make disciples through evangelization and acts of service. So we are engaging the youth and the young adults and also the adults and the children in programs of education, but also encouraging them to be engaged in, in, their, in their local community. So predominantly, it's the God With Us online program that we put together to make sure that there is catechesis from the time that they are able to sit down, and sometimes even before they're able to sit down, they run around, and, and that catechesis is ongoing. In the Melkite Catholic Church, we follow, we follow 
the ancient customs in a variety of things, even in the, specifically, for example, in the uh, sacraments of initiation. A child is baptized, a child is chrismated, and a child receives communion altogether. And chrismation in the Roman church is called what? Confirmation. Yes. I yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah. I got that one right. <laughs> and, uh, and the focus on there is that when somebody is baptized, they receive the Holy, the, the, when they receive the Holy Spirit, then they are full members of the community and they receive communion and are nourished. Uh, but they also need to be nourished intellectually and socially and spiritually. And so it's the responsibilities. And this is where the important role of the godparents, which is often forgotten as if they are some sort of just uh, party sponsors, <laughs> they are actually witnesses to the faith. So the godparents, in addition to the parents, commit to raising that child in the faith in all the different stages of their life, from the time that they are young to the time that they go through uh, uh, adolescence and then all also being witness of the faith throughout their life. So that is uh, the focus of a healthy parish that there are. And we have many of them that have excellent child programs for children um, and then also have programs for the youth, young adults, and also adults. So... Without that element of the of the church, it's kind of like a, a stool or a chair that is missing a chair. You know, thanks be to God, this is a very solid chair. You didn't you didn't put me on one that didn't, that was missing uh, that was missing a, uh, leg. a leg or something. Yeah. But a, but a church. Imagine we're sitting here, both of us trying to hold up this chair with one or two pieces missing, and then we're going to fall on the ground and say, "Oh, Father Mitch, why are you falling?" You know. Well, a parish is very much like that. If if a parish. Um, only offers a Sunday divine liturgy and then people show up late and leave early, well, it's a wobbly parish that's going to die. But when a parish has active children's ministry, youth ministry, young adult ministry, and adult ministry, and, and, adult ministry, and, and for the age, every older, that focuses on understanding their worship, understanding their faith, and also being engaged in the community, that is for sure a very dynamic and healthy community in which we have many of them in the United States. And I think, too, uh, something that I learned from teaching high school, you know, at some Jesuit high schools, uh, is that it's also very important for the teenagers and uh, young people to be engaged in serving others. Correct. They need very much to be learning, but also helping out other people. And there are all kinds of projects that can be right. done. Uh, and it, it helps them to see that it's not just I who am the center of right. the world, but Jesus Christ, and he's present in these needy folks, right. and I'm going to go out and serve them too. And it's critical to see the connection between the two. It's important to serve the needy, to serve the poor, but if it's not rooted in like in what you said, in, in, in belief and, and being firmly grounded in what Jesus did for us, then it becomes acts of random acts of kindness, or even in some cases, acts of pity. Yeah. You know, I'm helping somebody because yeah. he's so much worse off than me. But the Catholic approach is, I help that person because that person has the image of God imprinted in them. And secondly, that is what Jesus modeled in his ministry. Serve the poor, serve the needy, have mercy, forgive others. And so we have a balance of uh, uh, a dynamic spiritual life through, through, through prayer, but also flowing from that. And that's why my motto is becoming disciples, making disciples, 
If you are not a disciple yourself, you cannot be a witness to something that is not alive and living within you. Yeah. When one of the things that, um, you know, it's a tension be, between, um, you know, being able to reach out and speak to young people in their terms, but at the same time, we can't water down Jesus Christ, the gospel, the truth of the faith. Mm -hmm. Both of these can go on at the same time. You maintain the, the, the true faith. And this is one, one of the things that I so admire about the Eastern churches, including the Orthodox. We're not in communion with them. And there, there are divisions and such. But, you know, the, in the last century, it's been the Byzantine Christians who have suffered the most martyrdom. We had, we had 40 million martyrs yeah. in the last 100 years. And the, the, the pounding of the waves of persecution have come to the Eastern Church, sometimes in Muslim countries like uh, Iraq mm. and Syria and other places. But, but way more, that, that's smaller, it's, it's horrendous in its, in its size, but it's even worse yeah. under communism. Sure. You know, and keeping to the Orthodox faith has been crucial right. for the Eastern churches. That's correct. And ironically, and I reflect this also from my own life, is that I used to see how people, when I was much younger, those who are older trying to present the faith and trying to water it down because they think that young people are not attracted to, the, to authentic Christianity. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so they try to water it down, try to whitewash it, try to just make it some sort make of... Make it nice. Some, yeah, some sort of generic, um, generic kind of niceness religion. Of course, we need to be nice, but that niceness is rooted in Christ's death and resurrection and everything that he, is, that he has done. And one of the major... Conversion. Even though I was I was raised Catholic, we went to church every single Sunday. I was I was raised in a family that prayed every night together. But one of the turning points was to realize that all the happiness that the world has to offer, whether it be fame, finances, reputation, positions, everything, ends very quickly. You can be the wealthiest person in the world and then lose ten, twenty billion dollars. And whatever. And if that is the source of your happiness, it can disappear overnight. However, if the source of your happiness is your faith and your relationship with Jesus Christ, that continues to grow. If the source of your happiness is taking that faith and applying it to very active and real situations in life, that is more valuable than anything else. And that is what attracted me. And that is what helped me set, leave everything and follow Christ. Because the alternative was to work for more cars, to work for fancier uh, positions, to work for more finances. But at the end of the day, what does that bring? It might bring temporary happiness, but the call of God as it worked in my life was that that is going to bring you a sense of emptiness, whereas being rooted in Jesus Christ, rooted in knowing Him, rooting in walking with Him, and then from that, serving others is going to bring you the greatest kind of happiness in your life. And that is actually what I've experienced in my, in my life as well. Yeah. A great sense of joy that the Lord is walking with me and I am walking with him. And through that journey, I'm allowed to 
share in people's life and give to them something small in my, in my mind, but in their mind, something big because I've shared the message of Jesus Christ with them. Something that doesn't need to be watered down. Exactly. No, that, this, that's never the way of uh, growth. It's the way of superficiality. Absolutely. And that's never attractive. And people see through it very quickly. Exactly, exactly. I want to, again, encourage people to learn more about the Melkite Catholic Church in the United States and also about you, Bishop Francois Beiruti. Uh, you can go to melkite.org and you can also go to youtube.com slash Melkite TV and you will find out a lot more about this rich community and you'll also be able to find out uh, at Melkite.org if there is a Melkite parish Correct. near you. Yes. Uh, we have one here in Birmingham. The um, Maronite uh, Church is just a couple blocks away from the Melkites. Yeah. Uh, we marry back and forth. And we have and around 50 communities, as you mentioned earlier, yes. across the country. So odds are there is a community near you. Yes, and you're always, always more than welcome. Um, if you get a chance to go, especially uh, Good Friday. Yes. And on Easter, the hymns are some of the best. Yeah. Uh, you know, Messiah come in al what? Oh, you know, okay. this is... Christ is risen. Yeah. He is truly risen. Yeah, this is exciting times. Sayedna, thank you so much for joining us, coming all this way from Massachusetts to be here and be part of our, our programming. Hopefully we'll be able to do more with you. And if you would, in a short space, give us your blessing. Sure. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. May the blessing of Almighty God and His grace and mercy be upon you with His love for mankind at all times, now and always, and forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank, Thank you as well Sayedna. for this honor to be with you sure. and to share in this ministry that you have. Pleasure to have you. And we can continue this mission and have guests like Bishop Beirudi and all the other guests, plus all the other programs that we bring you, only because this network is brought to you by you. That's how our Lord inspired Mother Angelica to have it be. So please keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you for your support and generosity, and we'll see you next time.